Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I guess anybody having a son around now, you kind of look at him and you go, it's not going to be as good, mate. It's Mm. just not, it's not going to be quite as good. I think men have rightly, in some cases, looked at the language they use of women and whether or not they're making women feel uncomfortable. I don't see any such thing happening with women. (laughs) (laughs) A bloke will... You know, you fix the washing machine, all that. Steady on. I mean, yeah. like the, mate, I fixed the washing machine. Did on you? The, yeah. That is bloke point, mate, right there. Did you feel your testosterone rise? Do you see the rise? respect that they're both looking at? With yeah. You? The car manufacturers now routinely no longer put spare wheels in the boot of a car. Yeah. yeah. And I just thought that's just a massive slap in the face for, yeah. for us because they've looked at us and gone, nah. If you like, so what's going on with you? That made me tense. Yeah, like, it did. It made you tense. Yeah, it made said. me tense. I yeah. don't like it. I mean, what it what needs to be is there needs to be a long. Do it while mainly. I do don't it. like it. Yeah. I don't. It's failings. Yeah. The design of the original stormtroopers outfit. It just looks fucking great, right? You're yeah. saying so, women are stormtroopers. I'm saying women are, yeah. are fascist stormtroopers. But so it is also you possible. You sound like you're ready for a divorce, mate. D- 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 so it could also be possible. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is one of our favourite people ever to have on the show. He returns for the 730th time. Uh, He's a comedian and his new book is called The British Bloke Decoded. Jeff Norcott, welcome to Trigonometry. It's good to be back, you know. I was just thinking that last time I was with you guys, I was talking about, about why Labour was screwed eternally and why <laughs> we would have 10 years of Conservative rule. So, well, you, uh, you're known for your great predictions, Jeff, aren't you? Yeah, well, at the time it felt right, you know, but uh, <laughs> but things have changed. I definitely... The worst thing is as well over the years is that each time... Look, I've had to wear a bigger type jumper here because every time I see myself on it, I just see a man... I just see a man ageing over the years. That we we have that every day, mate. We are, mate. I'd see pictures of me from five years ago. I was like, my hair was black. Yeah, I, did. I wasn't going to bring it up, but that is... You have lost weight, though. Yeah, I have, mate. So you're doing better. Yeah. You're doing better on some things. This this is this is quite sort of touchy-feely. We're all trying to reassure each other about how well, we Well, let's look. talk about men. Yeah. yeah, blokes. Blokes. Blokes, right. So first of all, as you know, yeah. big international audience now, mm-hmm. not showing off or anything. What's a bloke, Jeff? A bloke. Well, I wrote the, bloke, the British bloke decoded because I sort of thought... For a while, after like Me Too and stuff, you know, there's a lot of stuff that certain kind of men that needed like a recording, right? Mm-hmm. The Harvey Weinsteins and, you know, people like toxic men that were doing genuinely dodgy stuff. But what happened? I think a lot of people would agree now that other things fell into that slipstream. And there was a period for quite a while where the male brand just, well, it slumped a bit, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. if, you, if it was a stock you market had a thing. like moment, yeah. <laughs> well, if it, if it was like, you know, like 1950s looking good, looking good, and then it just, you know, share price. Yeah. And, then, and then I sort of felt that, you know, there are, there are certain men who absolutely needed to be taken to task. But I also thought that there's the bloke of which I'd probably see myself being part of that group. And I think it is quite a British thing. You know, in fact, other cultures don't really have like a, an exact equivalent of this word. It's just, I don't know, you steady guy likes the stuff he's supposed to like, like me. You know, I'm very basic in the sense that my favourite food is curry, you know, my favourite drink is lager, you know, my favourite sitcom is Fools and Horses, you know, my favourite documentary is The Making of Fools and Horses. <laughs> I'm just, uh, there's one from the tour. And, <laughs> and, and so I kind of thought that's who I am. And I felt like during that time, we had to basically shut up and listen. But the, the word, we felt like we were drawn into a very negative pejorative of what being... A bloke was and I thought maybe it's time for a sort of I don't know like the book is supposed to be like a sympathetic stock take of where the British bloke is mm. and do you think the fact that you're you're a dad and you have a son yeah I, I remember actually the, the very first time we interviewed you and you know of all the, the comedians we've had on the show you're, you're probably the most affable out of the people who actually are willing to challenge the, the mainstream culture a little bit you Ma- are massive diss to every single other comic that's been on the show there. <laughs> no no no, no, no you, I'll fuck them I'll take it yeah, yeah no, well, yeah, what yeah, I mean please. is actually I think you, you, you have a way of framing your opinions and your comedy in a yeah. way that makes it easy for people on the other side so to speak, to hear. 
But the, when we ended our last question, you actually brought up something about men and boys that I thought was like, that's quite, Jeff clearly feels strongly about that. Mm. So did becoming a father of a boy kind of make you think about it in a slightly different way? Yes, I think because you sort of, for most of my life, I would say that, and this might be controversial the other way, that being a bloke and male has been a, a bit of a touch. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's more of a laugh, generally. Being, it is more of a laugh. I yeah. Would, I would yeah. say it's more of a laugh, less meaningful connections, but more of a laugh. But I, sort of, I guess anybody having a son around now, you kind of look at him, you go, uh, it's not going to be as good, mate. It's mm. just not, yeah. not going to be quite... As good. And and you sort of think, so what in a way, and it's interesting you mention that because that is sort of where the book starts, is is baby and bathwater. What aspects of what I deem to be blokery do I think are worth passing down? And, and the book starts with a sort of anecdote about my son uh, being involved in a bit of banter in the playground and, and, and him not understanding why the other boys seem to be being mean to him. But me taking great pleasure and going, no, son, what that is is banter. They're just testing you out to see if you're weak. And whether or not you'll be able to withstand the hunt, you know, and I started getting some very detailed kind of primitive stuff. And, and by the time I'd finished explaining banter to him, he was like, I don't really like banter. I was like, <laughs> don't like banter. And so it's... He's American, it, mate. Yeah. He's bad. What, well, yeah, what would it be? <laughs> trash talking, trashing each other. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really, Busting we, each we love America so much and we go there yeah. more and more, but banter is just, they, they don't have it. Trash talk, busting each other's balls. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, that, he takes things very literally, so that wouldn't have helped us. <laughs> yeah. But the, um, but I sort of thought, what, what other things are there that are quite complicated concepts? You know, certain things that get a lot of stick in modern discourse, right? So things like man up. I believe in this phrase, man up. I don't see a problem with it. And, and there, there came a period, I remember there was, and I, I talk about it in the book, but there was an advert for Lloyds Bank you know these adverts, right? They go, yeah. they go. Which way is the cultural wind blowing? Oh yeah, yeah. Blokes are shit. Man, man up. So this advert was a string of celebrities basically saying that they hated the phrase "man up," and I thought that's a real shame because I think obviously anything can go to excess, right? If you manning up means that. I don't know, you don't go to chemo, that's bad. <laughs> that's too far. Yeah. But I think for the most part, like a phrase like man up, man up is sort of like a call to arms for men, isn't yeah. it? It's basically saying, take yourself less seriously, take some responsibility for the situation, fall back a bit. You know, like if, if you've got like a load of families staying over and there's not enough beds, right? And you're just deciding who's gonna sleep on the couch, really uncomfortable makeshift bed. Is it gonna be granddad? No, is it gonna be the women, middle-aged, no. Is it going to be the kids? No. It's going to be the younger male, you know? And I think that's quite a good thing, to make yourself less important. And I also thought, it's a shame because the amount of things that blokes could lay claim to seem to be diminishing, whereas the amount of things that women sort of celebrate about themselves is, is fairly well established, you know, in terms of... I mean, that song by I'm Every Woman, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're literally claiming to be, like, fucking oracles and... It's all, I can read your thoughts right now. And nobody really challenges that. So I thought, could we just keep, could we keep manning up? So the book is, in a light-hearted way, I guess trying to, to offer up arguments for why things like banter and man flu exist and what kind of function they, they have. Oh, and it's such an important and profound point because if you look at what's going on in our society where you could argue, particularly certain elements of it, demonise men, and then everyone wrings their hands when you get a figure like Andrew Tate emerge and go, why is this? This is terrible. What, why is this? Well, yeah. You've been trashing men forever, however long. You've been saying they're toxically masculine, they're evil, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, someone who comes along and is going to subvert that is going to get a huge audience. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the argument that progressives might make is they'll often say, well, you've had 2,000 years, lads. And I, I just think, all right, I can understand that as a man of 46 that I've had certain privileges at times. I can see that. I just don't know if you're a 12-year-old boy, mm. whether that makes as much sense, less so if you're a 7-year-old boy and every single animation you seem to watch seems to involve a strong female lead and a nervous guy who gets there in the end, right? I started to notice that all these films... All these kid films. I mean, it's to... nice for me to be represented. I'm going to be yeah. honest with you. Today. And I, I mean, I watched the Super Mario film, and I thought Mario's the absolute hero of that. But yeah. of course, he can't get over the line without Princess Peach, can he? Just explaining everything that he's doing wrong, and her being heroic, and him just reluctantly, almost falling over the line as as a hero figure. So I guess yes, people like Andrew Tate come into that space, and it's I think most young males would would see 
the issues with some of what he's saying, but mainly they're just like, well, there's somebody, A, that is celebrating, you know, masculinity, which is, um, you know, something they might not see as much, certainly in Western popular culture, but also just on a simple level, you know, not just him, but like the, the, the sort of manosphere, as it's called, is that they're saying things that just seem true, I guess. When they start saying, women like guys with money, they're like, yeah, you know, that, that's, that's reasonable. <laughs> you know, uh, women like tall guys, women like athletic guys. And yet, you know, there's the kind of thing that if you were on a discussion panel show on Radio 4, you'd have to caveat. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. You'd have to go, look, it could be said, it could be said that in certain scenarios, and I'm, I'm by no means all, and you have to do all these weird yeah. fucking small print terms and condition things. And you go, yeah, but, but in wider Britain, none, a lot of these things um, aren't contentious, you know. So there's some stuff which is a defence of things, you know, which I think is is something that, that maybe is timely. But also just trying to scratch beneath the surface of some of our idiocy. Yeah. Like, why don't we wear sun... Do you wear sun cream when you're no. in a hot country? No, no, no. The I, knew, only... I knew he wouldn't. He no. just... I'm off South American, mate. I should be able to come out there and come back looking like a bronzed Adonis. Well, that's not what happens, though. You come out looking yeah. like a crab. I mean, you're <laughs> South American. You're whiter than both of us. Yeah. You're the whitest guy in the room. I am, and I take great pride in that, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you He's don't got wear, white pride, mate. Yeah. There you go. And what, what about you? Do you wear sun cream when you're on holiday? Uh, not for the first couple of days, and then, and then I eventually... I'm Classic, like, right? Yeah, yeah mate. Cause, you know... But 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 then my wife eventually turns out yeah. to be, have been right. And yeah, then, and then well, I start of course, wearing. Of course, they are right, and we should we should probably have some protection against the hottest thing in our universe. But yeah. but they, so I, I looked at the question of why don't men wear sun cream, right? Right. And I thought you could just pass it off as bravado or ignorance, you know, or just silliness. A lot of times, blokes are put into that kind of pigeonhole. They also thought about the act of moisturising your body on a beach. Now, women will generally use more creams, you know, night yeah. cream, day cream. They'll take more care of their body. A bloke won't often do any of that stuff. And then suddenly, uh, he's in a public space and he's supposed to basically engage in what he might feel looks like an act of self-love, right? And, and the worst thing is, you've got to get to that bit there. That is such a, a weird... You know, get into your lower back. It's almost like, you know when a cat has to lick their chin and they, yeah. they lose all their fucking dignity, like, <laughs> straight away. So I thought, there's more going on here than just blokes being uh, sort of uh, trying to be alphas or, or being emotionally retentive. It's actually about match fitness. In terms of self-preservation of our own bodies, we just don't do it that much. So on the two times a year we're on a beach and we're expected to do it, we have a bit of a reticence. We feel awkward. So it doesn't necessarily say that that's a wise behaviour, but it's not just block-headedness. It's not. And it, you know what's really interesting about seeing the younger generation? Like, for me and you, we came, so we came of age at that kind of post-rave generation, the sort of post-Britpop uh, you know, noughties, late nineties, where it was all about going out, you know, doing drugs, getting getting messed up. And you look at this new generation now, and the pressure for them to look good and to be ripped and to be buff men, we've never had that. It was all about how much you could take on a night out. Yes, and I think so. The, the first time I appeared on this show, and I was, I, I did say about the objectification of men would would eventually become an issue. It hasn't fully come into view yet, but it is funny. I think whereby I think men have rightly, in some cases, looked at the language they use of women and whether or not they're making women feel uncomfortable. I don't see any such thing happening with women. Like, <laughs> have, you, have you been out for like dinner with a group of middle-aged women, a bit, a bit of prosecco, and then if the waiter's a bit good-looking? Oh, mate. Do what, the way that they speak to him, you're like, you're being creepy. But it, it, often it won't occur to them that it's possible for them to be creepy because in their minds, they've presumed that all men want female attention all the time. And there's a lot of truth in that. But, you know, if he's 19 years old and he's a 10, you know, there's a certain kind of attention, I guess, that he feels that that he would want. And, and I think that that, is, that has been, instead of like saying, why don't we, you know, women have this pressure to look good and, and men don't. Instead of saying, why don't we take it away from both parties, all we've done is equalised it, really. Yeah. And, and the way that, that men are objectified. Like, look, I mean, for example, I heard a, uh, a, a very high profile film review show and they were talking about Henry Cavill and, they, and there was two female presenters and they said, well, he's very easy on the eye. And, um, and I just thought, you know, I, I, I don't care about that personally, but I just thought, God, if Mark Kermode and Simon Mayer were going, yeah, she's a, she's a bit of eye candy there. <laughs> it's now, I know there's a different history and stuff. So I do think that the, the sexual politics is, is changing uh, rapidly. 
I just think what you're actually highlighting there, Jeff, is that this idea that we've somehow got into where the relationship between men and women is portrayed as some sort of battle of the sexes is mm. the most insane thing I've ever heard because throughout human history and almost certainly for the rest of human history, these two groups of people are going to have to work together to survive, to thrive, to raise children, etc. And so sort of playing this like who's up, who's down thing just doesn't make any sense. What, what ideally we should be looking at is how do, how do we work together? How do we understand the differences? But we seem to have got to a point where it's like, let's pretend there are no differences other than men are evil. Yeah, it seems that where, where in the past, you know, women had certain sexist presumptions about them. Like you say, there's an overcorrection. And society does generally overcorrect, and no one really wins in that in that case. Yeah. All you do is, is slightly try and, uh, and equalise the misery. But there was a point I was just about to... Hey, that's a fucking great point. Classic bloke, you see, forgot the important things. Uh, th that we're supposed to. Oh fuck! Is there an? It's a really good. It's we'll really let good. It we'll, we'll, we'll let it out. What was it you were, you were saying? To, oh, that was it. That was it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the reason that that historic Gillette, Gillette advert was yes. such a yeah, huge fuck up nice. was was simple. Is that most women have blokes in their life? They have a husband who they hopefully like. They have sons who they want to be happy. They have a father that was probably on balance quite nice to them and stuff. So then, once you start demonising, you actually lose the broad audience because. Women don't necessarily want to think all of the, the, the men that they know are potential, you know, uh, sex offenders or in the case of Gillette, <laughs> some weird kind of male version of a fucking Stepford wife. So, so that, is what, that is where, I suppose, in terms of a mass audience, you'll always find pushback. And, you know, in the book, I've sort of said that even if people, you know, if you're not a bloke yourself or, or if, you're if a woman is married to more of a, you know, uh, a less sort of blokey guy, more perhaps a effeminate type guy, or if you're, you know, you're gay, or you will know blokes, right? Blokes will be in your life, whether it's brothers, uncles, husbands, or anything, you know? So it's trying to make sense of that tribe, really. You know, it's a big part of society, blokes. It's a big subset of the man. It's not like a lad. A lad is different. Mm -hmm. a lad is usually young and does all this shit, you know. Yeah. A geezer will often, you know, walk like that. A bloke, I suppose, is a bit more calmer, you know. He wants to be a dependable presence for the people that he loves. He'll, he'll do lots of lifts for people. He'll pick people up from airports and stuff. That's a, it's all very blokey stuff. A bloke will... You know, in fix the washing machine, all that. Steady on. I mean, like the. <laughs> mate, I fixed the washing machine. Did on you? The, that yeah. is bloke point. Mate, right there. How did you do that? I, I looked it up on YouTube, obviously. But, yeah. but, but I, I looked up the parts, ordered it in, took the thing apart in front of my son, put the new part in. Yeah. Mate. Yeah. Did you feel your testosterone rise? Do you see the rise? respect that they're both looking at with yeah. me? Yeah. Thinking, oh, that's, that's, no, he I, just talks. No, 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 no. I think I think to build and fix is is a big part of, of, of what we feel compelled yeah. to do. Now, look, are our generation ever going to be up with our granddads who would, uh, you know, f like ch changing a spare tire by the side of the road? We're not we're not doing that. Let's be, be honest. No. That's, that's very unlikely to I've happen. But well, you know what's interesting though, Constantine, was I found out, you know, in, in the process of writing this book, that the uh, the the car manufacturers now routinely no longer put spare wheels in the boot of a car. Yeah. yeah. And I just thought that's just a massive slap in the face for, yeah. for us because they've looked at us and gone, nah. You lot, you're not about that life. You go and sit, you go and sit, you go and sit and wait for the nice AA man. Read, read your, read your family a poem, you know, <laughs> because because this is. And I thought that's that's actually a shame because the the trust that your son will have had in you. Yeah. From, from seeing that moment. And again, and this is what you find in the modern age is, is the short, uh, the terms and conditions and the caveats. It's not to say women can't fix washing machines. It's not to say that women can't never. It's just that <laughs> I think that, you know, when it How comes How many to, women, Jeff, statistically speaking, do you think have ever fixed a washing machine? Um, well, based on pornography, <laughs> I'm not sure the washing machine ever gets fixed by, by anybody. Yeah. But it's good to see you've done your research. Exactly. Right? Well, porn's another area, isn't but, it? But yeah. look, let's come back to the Gillette thing because I think that's really interesting because to me, in the 90s, the Gillette adverts were actually basically telling men exactly how to be healthy men. Yeah. If you remember those 90s Gillette adverts, it was all guys or fathers, you know, uh, hugging their son on the, his wedding day, mm. uh, a guy going out to work, his wife does helps him with the time. Uh, yeah, he looks yeah. after his baby. Yeah. It, it was all about what you're actually supposed to be. You'd look at that and you go, oh, you know, one day when I grow up, I'm going to have a wife and I'm going to have a son and I'm going to have a job and I'm going to 
do all these things and I'm gonna compete and I'm gonna do well, bring home the bacon and eventually my son will get married and I'll be there. And th that's kind of what you're supposed to do as a, as a bloke, as a guy, as a man. And now we're in a position where it's like, instead of telling men how to be healthy, it's like, no, 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 this is what's wrong with you. Yes. It's incredible transformation, really. And I don't think it's beneficial to men or women. Well, yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Is that there's always a, it's like in a relationship between a man and a woman. There is, of course, advice, criticism, rebuke, instruction. But it's got to be part of a pie chart, isn't it? Where a certain amount of it is that. There's praise, celebration. It did seem like the pie chart <laughs> kind of circled around. And, and a lot of the advice, you know, when, it's, when it comes down to, you know, how men should be with their friends, you know, you've got to talk more, you've got to share more. And I think, I do think that, that men do need to do that more. But I also think that men and women both have an issue around that. I think men need to share a bit more of their friends. Maybe women need to share a bit less. Can we have that conversation? You don't no. have to tell your friend every single like, intimate detail of what's going on in your relationship with a man because it, it's a real dividing line, that, I think. I, I, in my whole life, I don't think I've... And, and there is a stereotype that men used to criticise their wives. I would not sit with you boys on a night out and just start trashing my wife. I would, I would think that you would think less of me as a man if I did that you would think that he's treacherous, he's disloyal, you know? Whereas, whereas it literally is the other way around, broadly speaking for women. It's a bonding exercise. If two of them are trashing their husband, the third one might just make something up just to be part of the game, just so he, he kicked me in the shins the other. Did he? No, I just, I just <laughs> wanted to have something to add to the, to the chat. I didn't want to seem, you know, I didn't want to seem outside of, of the group. And I think that that is, there's always this idea that men need to um, like emotionally correct to where women are. Whereas I think there's actually somewhere in the middle and it needs to go on on both sides. There is a point with blokes where I love going away as a group of blokes and talking absolute bollocks, you know. It's so, um, it's so reju reju that's what rejuvenates me is to just yeah. not think of anything serious for a while. But there are points in my life where, you know, a mate of mine will be talking about his third kid and I'll be thinking, third? I didn't, I don't remember the second, you know. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's not cool. I think we could do, and that's not like for any great empathic reason. It's just, it's not unreasonable to just be broadly speaking up to date with the main features of your pals' lives because if the shit hits the fan for them, you want to at least know the, the name of the woman that left him. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And I think what people don't acknowledge as well is that there is a fundamental difference, like you said, between men and women and we need different things from our friendships. Mm. Like, I want to be able to talk to my mates about you know, things that are not going well in my life, but when I see my mates, like you said, I see it as a break from reality. Yeah. I want to go, I want to have a laugh, I want to you know, just talk about you know, life, whatever it is. I don't particularly want to talk about me, if I'm honest. You know, mm. There'll be banter, there'll be fun. Why is that, Francis? <laughs> mm. <laughs> Because See, if you did that on a night out, if you're like, so what's going on with you? That would make me tense. Yeah, like, it did. It made you tense. Yeah, it made then. me tense. I yeah. don't like it. I mean, what it needs to be is there needs to be a long... Do it while... It mainly I do don't it... like it. Yeah. I don't. There's feelings. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I think that there's definitely... But there's obviously merit in both approaches. Yeah. And that's maybe the argument I'm making, is that we've got to a point where we're acting like there's no merit in one approach and total merit in the other approach. Because, yeah. you know, I, I, I think you can analyse problems into the ground. I also think that there are potential benefits of... You know, blokes have nicknames for each other. Blokes, oh, yeah. When you're mean to another bloke, it, part when he's a mate, it's because you tr there's trust, right? You can withstand it. And I think that... You know, I don't know many women that have nicknames for each other. Probably more working class women have nicknames for each other. Yeah. But, or, or if they're on a, a, a WhatsApp group for a hen do, like yeah. if there was people who were a bit late pay and would go, come on you fucking moron. You yeah. know, d use the kind of language that blokes would say yeah. to sort of chivvy people up and put a rocket under someone. I think that there is a tendency to be more agreeable, you know, has been, has been discussed quite a bit. I just think that neither are correct they're just different approaches. I don't understand where one became bad, unhealthy, toxic, and the other one just escaped scrutiny. And it's also as well that women don't want this kind of new man that is being presented to them. They may say they do, but they don't really. Well, they, the thing yeah. is, I think a lot of women don't even say that they do, but what's happened is a small group of people who are more influential in terms of media yeah. and, and sort yeah. of society, they're imposing their values on everybody else. And by the way, you know, if you remember our Rob Henderson interview yeah. in terms of like luxury beliefs, 
quite a lot of them will still have a, a manly bloke at home, but oh, they'll yeah, fucking yeah. bang on in The Guardian about how all the men need to, you know, cut mm. their dicks off or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind there of... There was an article that all men needed to cut their dicks probably, off in The Guardian. Yeah, I mean, I bet you if we I'm look it up... It's it took prob- The Guardian that long to get to that. <laughs> that feels like the apex of the... You know what I mean, right? Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. Like, yeah. it's a kind of mismatch between, I think, what most women actually want and what elite culture is telling them they're supposed to want. Is, is my it, sense it's, you know it. what's interesting? Just then, I, I suddenly thought, like, are we, are we, we sound like moaning blokes here? You know, like just sitting here. This is the actual only time that blokes do talks when yeah. they're on podcasts or, or, or shows like this with exactly. each with each other. But that does bring me to another aspect of of being a bloke: is that you're not expected to moan. You know, mm. you're not, mm. and that's where something I guess like the concept of man flu comes from, which is you know, there's obvious scientific research as to why when viruses strike men, it can feel more virulent to them. But even as I'm saying that. I guarantee there's some women watching this game. <laughs> you know, especially yeah. especially if they've given birth. Fair enough, right? If you've given birth, you're out you're, you're out of this equation. But it's kind of strange because you're supposed to, you're encouraged to talk more about your feelings, right? And then like you feel really ill. Shut the fuck up about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so it's obviously selective. And I get that because, you know, if you're in a family situation, it's and this in a way is where the small C conservative mindset comes from. It's born of pragmatism. If you're in a family situation, where there is a woman who's likely to be doing more caregiving for the children, you know, running of the house, that stuff. An ill man is really inconvenient in the first place, right? Secondly, him moaning about it, really, you just don't have time for it. So I can see why this is evolved. But also the idea of, of acting like man flu isn't a thing. It sounds very close to the idea of gaslighting, isn't it? You feel something's happening, you report that it's happening, somebody tells you it's all in your mind. Mm. You know, well, sorry, Francois, just to finish that thing, I, I think um, I, I know what you mean about sounding like we're moaning. I, I really do. And I think Manfred is actually a very good example of where understanding of the differences between the sexes mm. is very helpful. Like my wife understands that if I'm ill, I, I, feel, I don't feel well. Mm. Right. And we work around that. Likewise with her, there's certain things that she finds more difficult than I do. Mm. And I know that about her and I'm there to support her with that in the same way, do you know what I mean? So, oh, what, just going out for a couple of days till she feels better? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> just go out, have a few drinks with my mates. She's, she's Yeah, yeah, wait, for, wait yeah. for the weather to pass, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think. I mean, it's yeah, there are there are just simple, like you say, I guess there are there is biology there. I mean, it, women can see a broader range of colours, so this will manifest in conversation. Like, I don't believe that I've ever met a woman that would describe a colour as black. You say, oh, that's black, midnight blue, navy blue, anything other than black. You know, they just see a wider spectrum of colour. So they sometimes might think a bloke's being ignorant when he says something's green when it's turquoise. It's just we're not seeing things on, on the same level. And there's, there's even differences in the way that, that men kind of see, you know. Or certainly, I, I realise now in the comments section, they were, you know, this might be contestable, but there's certainly educated people that believe that men are better with literally with tunnel vision, whereas women are better with peripheral uh, that would make a lot of sense. This is, all of this is basically explaining why I can never see anything in the cupboard, right? <laughs> this is a, a complex way of me trying to... Ju- this whole book is me trying to justify to my wife as to... I just can't see shit. When she's going to look for something, I, I don't get it. But, you know, if I, I can look to the horizon a lot easier, and maybe there's some sort of genetic legacy for that. And, and what we don't talk about with men as well... And look, it's important for women, but I think sometimes it's just more important for men is exercise... You know, like you see so many men now who talk about, you know, depression and, and, and all of these things. And of course, they need to man up, according to, to Jeff Norcott. Yeah, 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 you need to fucking well, deal with it, mate. Yeah. But, <laughs> sweat it out. <laughs> sweat it out. Sweat yeah. depression out. Yeah, just go. But if you go to the gym and you have a good session, I mean, you feel so much better and more yeah. in control of your life. I think that there are a lot of women who are mothers that would probably say, well, it would be nice to have the time to go to the gym and stuff like that. I think broadly what you're saying is true. If you look generally at how much space in people's lives they make for exercise, men would make more. I mm-hmm. think you know, if you look around any gym, competitive sports. Now, you could argue that that is... Or a construct, but then also, you know, it's, it's not thing- a fucking construct. No, man. no, no, no. But I, that's what I mean. Is like if things are a reality for long enough, it's like male and female beauty, right? People just say, well, female beauty is is venerated because that's the kind of stock that we put on it. You go, it's also been around a while, that idea, right from the earliest painting and yeah. stuff, right from the way that women look at each other. There is something about women that I think. You know, and, and it, this is from my prism of heteronormativity, cis. I don't know, does cis come into it? Possibly. But is the, I just think there's something nicer. You can have such thing, oh God, I realise I'm going to get rinsed this. But as a design classic, right? 
Some things are the design. Yeah. <laughs> Where am I going with this? The design of the original stormtroopers outfit. It just looks fucking great, right? You're yeah. saying so, women are stormtroopers. I'm saying women are, yeah. are fascist stormtroopers. But so it is also you possible. You sound like you're ready for a divorce, mate. The, 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 so it could also be possible. <laughs> this is fucking great. It could also this. be possible that maybe just one of the bodies, broadly speaking, looks a lot nicer on average than the other. Guys, Jeff is on his last ever tour. Yeah. Uh, or I'll be on tour forever. You yeah. know? Or, or he'll be on tour forever. But I mean, you know, in, in terms of the marriage thing, it is, it's just this riddle isn't it you go, you've got these two human beings same species you go you're different I'm, and, and sometimes it will result in a row but because of that difference sometimes you don't understand it but then sometimes the difference is the source of attraction isn't it if you look at like what a lot of women they like big, big arms you know because that's the thing that they generally speaking don't have men will like curves because we don't have, well the ones we do no one likes to look of over, over time <laughs> and and i you know i also think that curves are if you look at atoms planets, suns, orbits. We sort of know that curves really are what makes life goes around, right? Eh? Yeah. Guys, it's an interesting theory, Jeff. Egg, <laughs> eggs. All the, all I the don't good, know if it's been peer reviewed. All the good but... stuff is, is curves. But but the point I'm, that I'm making is is, is the, the difference is the basis of attraction. 100%. For, for, yeah. for a hell of a, you know, for heterosexuals most, more generally, right? So, so if you try and chip away at that difference, what happens to attraction? Well, completely. And the thing, I, my wife and I, we've been married over 20 years now, that we found the most useful is reading stuff and, and, and understanding what the differences are and how to navigate them. So John Gray, who we've had on our show, uh, he wrote uh, that very famous book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, and he's updated it since and whatever. And that's really all it is, is understanding the psychological and physical differences between mm. men and women. Um, and we're talking about depression earlier. There's quite a lot of evidence now that one of the reasons that men's uh, men are not really getting treated for depression nearly as, as well, is that the help men need yeah. is completely different to the help women mm, need yeah. when they are depressed. Right? Yes. So they need a different solution, but quite often it's it's a solution that's geared towards women that is then sort of mapped onto men and it just doesn't work very well because men need a different thing. Men need to feel competent and powerful as a result of whatever therapy they do, whereas for women it's more about being heard and mm. unpacking certain issues and whatever. Do you know what I mean? I do. I mean, I remember, I, yeah, I, I'm a big believer in, in counselling and talking therapies. You know, it took, took things for me to get quite bad with me where it was just a last sort of throw of the dice. But I remember the first counselling session I went for, um, the, the woman who's the therapist sort of said, you know, it's okay to feel weak. I was like, weak? <laughs> well, you mentioned a weak word for Why did you mention that? I don't want to feel weak. You know, and I was gone, you know, within yeah. not too long at all. Uh, they, I wanted a more, you know, like the head tilt in empathy doesn't really work for me. No. So no. if I'm talking about sad things that happen and someone says, that must have been very tough for you. And maybe this is what's wrong with me. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I need to acknowledge it was tough, but... That I, I would I just need to almost verbalise what happened because maybe I don't reflect on it as much. So a lot of the early counselling I did was just sort of narrativising things, telling the story of what happened, and I go, oh yeah, that what that was, that was what I hated about that, or that was what made me angry. And eventually I found the right therapies. And it's it's interesting, you know, like there are a lot of blokes that are still resistant to talking therapies. I think they're a great thing to get you off the floor. I also think having done them for a lot of years, there is a point where and this is maybe a more blokey take that your past is just your past and you just got to suck it up a little bit. Well, you've got just, to go through the process first and that's why I'm yeah, a the, big fan of that stuff as well. Yeah. That you've got to process whatever happened but then you've got to just accept, you know, your life was your life, you're moving on and what is it that you're going to do in the future? I think, I think that's the path for yeah, really... You, you might you have to go over like dates and stuff yeah. that, that, that make you reflect but, but yeah, you go, all right, that, that was who my parents were, these were their good things, these were the bad, bad things. The idea that you constantly retell that story, the, the, the concept, I think, for a bloke of self-pity oh, is yeah. an important one. The idea, the tiny violin is always there in our minds. Am I, you know, like, because we've had blokes around us that will call it out often enough. And in the book, the very last chapter is I'm, t I'm talking about, you know, is it okay for men to cry in public? And my view is very much that it's better if we do in private, which sounds really toxic. But, I, you know, I have a good cry regularly, but I just think that that's where I can do it properly. The problem is the process of there being witnesses to my tears changes the function of it. Right, and I and and also I just think men don't cry as often statistically, so that when we do do it, we're not match fit. So we look horrific. <laughs> yeah. Like have you seen, like it just looks awful. It's like this fucking Hulk-like metamorphosis. Whereas, you know, I think, you know, the women I've known in my life, 
I'm like, my mum could cry and like still fold clothes, you know? So there's, there's definitely a different ability there. And I think that male tears hold a different status in society. So Novak Djokovic cried after the, his Wimbledon final defeat, right? It's nice to see my son still there, still smiling, you know? Uh, um, uh, <laughs> um, Uh. I love you. Thank you for supporting me, and uh, I'll give you a big hug, and we can all love each other. Thank you. <laughs> Novak Djokovic, ladies and gentlemen. Something within him broke, and we're like, that's wonderful. We have this strong guy, this athlete that's got all the way. He's earned this. But if he cried like that after the quarterfinal, we'd be like, okay, mate, you know, yeah. it's a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> Just get back to the locker room. Somebody put a towel over his head. And, and you could say that that is toxic or anything, but it's always, that's really, you know, I don't think you can completely ignore the base reasons why that emotional impulse exists in the first place. So again, it's like you say with counseling, it's working with what is there in blokes really and what is there in blokes is different and the language of therapy can sometimes seem a bit alien yeah it's so important to find a good therapist because part of what i think in uh, the process of moving on is to acknowledge what's happened accept it so yeah. put, and then accept what's happened and then put uh, things in place in order to help you move on constantly revisiting the same trauma all you're doing after a while is just picking at a scab and you're not letting yourself heal yeah, and I think that people people find that over time. I mean, I suppose that there are that's where our friendship groups could come into it a, a bit more. Maybe if it was like you know a pit stop as such, yeah. not a full like kind of like in, new engine, but just a tire change with each other. Like when we go out for a beer. I mean, one of the things I spoke about in in the book as well is about beer and the process of going for a pint and why that appeals to blokes. So again, it's this really surface level thing. You know, it's a good question, why do, why do men like beer? They do, you know. Here's an interesting one, right, for the liberal elite, right, and you can play along at home if this is like a tea time quiz. Yeah. What do you think is the top selling lager in the UK? It's gonna be something shit like Foster's. Constantine? He's trying to suppress his- Carling? Carling, he's got it. Carling, really? after all these years, you know? And it's really interesting, there's almost a metaphor for blokiness, right? That I think that's been the way since more or less the 90s. Mm. So that just shows you how stable the state I of like blokiness is. I like what I like, I don't like change. Yeah, I, I like what I like, I don't really even like it. That's how much of a bloke I am. <laughs> but I'd imagine that maybe your more metropolitan elite mm. type viewers might have gone, oh, neck oil or toffee flavoured IPA and stuff. Mm. But if you, if you look outside of London, Manchester, Newcastle, you get out there, think of all these pubs, all these backwater pubs that have just been serving Carlin um, all these years. And, and you know, just drinking a lager and, and sitting in a pub, it, it's one of the few times men can sit opposite each other without an, a, a, a game or a distraction, you know, because you've got a pint, you've got, you can get away, you know. I've never go for a meal with just another bloke. Just way too fucking tense, right? Yeah. Just sitting there. But whereas, you know, a pub will have distractions. We've been for a meal together. Yeah, and I felt tense. <laughs> I felt really tense. I'll tell you exactly where it was. It was in Shrewsbury. And, and you and I deliberately picked, you know, like the one where you're against the wall? Yeah. Because I knew it'd make me feel tense. So I had better sight lines. Yeah. It's mad, <laughs> it's mad what goes on in our head. But a pub is good because it has distractions, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, so you can really, you know, there might be sport and there might be a snooker table. For whatever reason, those, you know, blokes tend to tend... Well, tend one theory I heard about that is that men, you know, used to spend most of the time that they would spend together hunting. And so they, they naturally sort of feel more comfortable facing in the same direction next to each other. Right. Whereas women will tend to be sort of in a huddle type of thing because they, that's what they'd be doing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's just too much scrutiny, man. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. Be, they, might, they might see the truth, yeah. you know, if they're looking at me like that. Yeah, and it's, you know, you see it as well with, you know, with, and I know football fans can sometimes be obnoxious, but I do think it plays a vital role in society. Yes. For men to be able to go together, to watch a game, you know, to bond, to say, 
horrible stuff that they would yeah. never say within the confines of their own home. And it's a pressure valve, isn't it? It's a purge. I mean, I mean, it is a purge of a, a form of like primal scream therapy. Yeah. But what's interesting, <laughs> and I mentioned this, you know, in the book, is about football clubs. Like, people often miss out the element of a club, right? That was how they originally formed. Like, Aston Villa and Birmingham City were formed in that area around that time because there was a lot of kind of, uh, uh, you know, sort of feckless young men that were getting involved in nefarious activities, you know, trying to keep them out of gangs like the Peaky Blinders, essentially. Mm -hmm. Let's have a place for these these young fellas to go. So there's a community element. And, and, and I think blokes do invest a lot into that. So when you see... The, the stadium, you know, when the clubs get a new stadium and you see these grown, absolute silverbacks outside, outside they're crying. It does look a bit odd to some people, but like there's way, there's so much invested in that. You know, it might be where their father took them. And, I, you know, I do speak a lot about sport um, in, in the book. Of course, you know, female participation in sport is going up dramatically, but overwhelmingly, you know, it's something that men seem to f feel that they need in, in their lives. Maybe it's like a, a coded conversation, isn't it? You know, And, and one, one of the aspects of being a bloke, a really key aspect of being a bloke, is that you think the game's changed. Yeah. It's not what it was. No, it's, it's not, not what as it physical. Was. I'll tell you what, next year it will be worse. You know, <laughs> there, just, there was just some point, I guess, when you were about 13, yeah. where you thought sport was perfect. Yeah. Because you just found it. And ever since then, it's been getting progressively worse. Every bloke thinks that. There's almost no, uh, yeah, you know, we might, maybe one or two exceptions. But, you know, I suppose once you get um, Saudi regimes running football clubs, maybe it really has got worse. But it's also as well, what's really interesting, and we're talking about sport getting worse, which is something that I think is... I knew you think that. No <laughs> suntan cream. Sport's getting worse. Yeah. You know. I just tick every box, but... It's, it's the lack of physicality in sport. You do, there's a part of me that goes, yeah, feminisation of society, look at them, one little tap, they're rolling over. I yeah. remember, two-footed, not even a yellow card, mate. Well, I mean, but interestingly, you look at some of the, the things of sport, are oh, contact, hugging, yeah. hugging strangers, singing, it's fair, you know, singing, having a sing-song, it's not the most overtly masculine thing that you could think of. And if you think of... Uh, Football clubs that their, their their most notable songs are quite emotional, like Liverpool. You'll never walk yeah. alone. Uh, Man City sing true, uh, Blue Moon. Yeah, West, West Ham's I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. I love that song. It's so incongruous, but yet there must be a reason for that because in in sport, like you say, there's all these men that go in there. They're this balloon that's just waiting to burst. Yeah, it like, is. You know, I, I love that song because. For, for our American viewers and people, you know, who, who watch sports, particularly Americans, it's about celebrating success. Yeah. West Ham's song is called I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. And one of the lyrics in it is, the bubbles, they fly so high, but like my dreams, they fade and die. Fortune's always right. I mean, it's so enigmatic. Yeah. It, it is really odd. And also it should be said for the American audience that West Ham would be perceived to be, to have quite a blokey, sort of manly uh, uh, fan, fan base as well. So, you know, a lot of the book is about that. You know, why do we like curry? Why do we like pints? Yeah. Why do we like sport? But try not to just do it in a, a too basic a way, to genuinely scratch beneath the so surface. So why do we like curry, Jeff? Well, curry, because it involves jeopardy, I think. Partly, again, Ooh, it's, a, it's a routine it's as a well. It's a roll of the dice. Yeah. It's a bit of a, can be a roll of the dice. I mean, I think that one, you don't have to organise it. I don't know if anybody's ever pre-booked a curry. And if it is, it's probably one of your more middle-class mates that yeah. starts to, oh yeah, you know, the, the chef trained in Goa. You're like, all right, Tim. <laughs> um, but generally, you just rock up. And, and like, you know, the great, the blokes that work at curry houses are just the most like sort of practical-minded people. Do they have, have you booked? Have you ever been asked that? No. <laughs> at curry house. And they, they, don't, they often don't even say, like, do you want a beer? They go, how many Cobras? Yeah. How many Poppadoms? Right? Because they know exactly <laughs> what you're going for. You're going for the same fucking thing you had the last 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then there's this, this element of, of self-expression. One, in how you deal with the Poppadoms in the first place. You know, how you, whether you, you smash them or whether you try and get a lot of different things on, like a pizza, where it's just one thing. And then what curry you choose, you know? And a lot of young people, you know, that bravado element of going for a... Well, first it was like Vindaloo, but then do you remember there was a fowl? Yes. There was this murmurings of this spicy alternative called a fowl, and I had a fowl. And I don't think I've ever been the same since. <laughs> I just think I'd, I've messed up something in my intestines. Jeff Norcott, broken by a fowl. Uh, yeah. Broken by a fowl. But, but, you know, I used to do like... I used to eat lime pickles straight from the thing, just as like... Um, 
a show of bravado uh, to the to the troop. I mean, I did I did often think that they should just like do some sort of Rennie type shot mm. in a curry house, you know, like a liqueur. But like they're saying, you know, you can order it secretly under the bar. Because I'm sure I did my intestines damage. But there is there is something like um, boisterous about about a curry that that obviously appeals. So it's another one of those surface things where you go, it's really easy to just say, oh, well, blokes are basic because they like curry. But why? Why do they like curry? And because, yeah, you can sort of prove your metal. In the There's f- an element of risk involved. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jeff, it, it's, uh, it's great to have you on to talk about this stuff. And um, uh, I hope everybody reads the book, uh, The British Bloke Decoder. But uh, let's take a few minutes before we, we move on to locals to talk about politics. Because mm. uh, it's obviously you as a comedian, you, you comment on stuff and make jokes about it. Uh, we've had a bunch of lefties on the show in recent weeks and months mm. uh, as we build up to what will be uh, almost certainly a Labour, a Labour government at this point coming yeah, down the yeah, pipe. Probably, what yeah. do you think about that? Well, they'll be the biggest party, I, w- I would have thought. Yeah. Uh, I don't think, I don't know what could happen. I mean, like, governments generally get voted out when the economy's bad, and the economy's mm. bad, and it will continue to, be, continue to be bad. I mean, all the point is, our oh, 13 years, you know, there have been scandals, which, you know, some have been overblown, some, some have been valid. But I think the main thing is that people feel skint. And historically, people tend to get voted out. And, and also Labour have sort of... There's this weird thing that's happened in British politics, whereby all the, all the grown-ups are in the room, right? Which I always think is a really tragic way to refer to yourself. Uh, with the grown-ups in the room. Makes you think of Will from The Inbetweeners. That's sort of like the kind of thing that he would say. But they, they talk about the last, you know, the Brexit-type era of politics as the least edifying in Br- British political history. And there's some truth in that. Johnson hiding in the fridge, Corbyn and, you know, his issues... I do think there's also something unedifying about a prime minister who's currently just looking for a grift. You know, literally, Rishi is going down the list of diminishing returns to motorists. I'll be the motorist guy. Yeah. I'll be the guy with cars. And so he's been, he's been uh, the boats. I'll, I'll be about the boats, you know, because there's so little left after 13 years in power for him to attach himself to. But equally on the other side, you've got the leader of the opposition who's just gleefully auctioning off every last principle and policy he's ever had. <laughs> and, and yet you get people like, you know, Alistair Campbell and, and Rory Stewart. Well, thank God the grown-ups are back in the room because this is it's just a better quality period of politics. You go, well, the optics might be better. I'd agree with that. But the underlying principles of what's happening as we come up on the next election are arguably, not maybe not just as bad, but they're not great, are they? And, and there is something, I mean, I wasn't going to talk about politics as much on the next tour, uh, Basic Bloke. You know, some British Bloke decoded Basic yeah, Bloke. I'm yeah. trying to start a Marvel cinematic style, <laughs> the, the blokeosphere. Um, but I do think politics has become funny again. I think it's a lot funnier than it was under Corbyn and Johnson because you've got this Starmer who's this, just, he obviously has got the voice, which is a bit ridiculous, but also him and, him and Sunak, they just look like, they, they just, Sunak just looks like he just won Junior Apprentice. Yes. You know, just sitting there grinning. <laughs> yeah. Just as, it seemed, I don't think it should be problem to be small and be Prime Minister, yeah. or, or to be young, but I think being young and small, you're like... Yeah. Does look like a child, and he's and he's got and he wears ankle swingers as well. He wears ankle swingers. You can't take a man seriously with ankle. And he's so keen, you know. It's it's a bit the keenness is a bit much. And then Starmer, who just looks like a sort of life insurance salesman that decided he wanted to be king, and 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 this this you know, two it just feels like two bald men fighting over an ideological comb. You know, like there's there's so little between them. Now the truth of the matter is is that. They, they both represent politics. I, look, I'm centre-right. So in terms of what they actually broadly will represent, it's not a million miles away from me. But in terms of politics to get excited about, politics to motivate, politics to have a discussion about, it's, it's, absolutely, it's absolutely bereft. I mean, the idea that, you know, the way that the, the same group of people who are saying that you should never lie to win elections, you know, and now seem to have forgotten that principle. And they're just... Every time Starmer junks another idea, it's like, well, it's just what you've got to say to win an election. All yeah, oh, right, because before you were saying that that was basically fascism. But <laughs> the thing I find really interesting about Labour is that you ask me a single Labour policy, and I'm someone who follows politics and is a politics nerd, I don't think I'd be able to tell you one. All that Labour have really done is just stood back and let the Conservatives make an ass of it. That's, well, yeah. re- that's really all they've done. Yeah, and I think that you could understand that strategically up to yeah. a point. It's almost been like Labour, because if you f- if people forget that like, Tories were still ahead going into October 2021, and then the Owen Patterson thing happened, then Partygate happened, each thing dropped, and then Liz Truss happened. So what Labour have 
in terms of a poll lead, is effectively like a surprise inheritance from a mad uncle. Like, their life was just going along, it wasn't really that good, and then there was suddenly a letter from a lawyer arrived, you've won a 15-point lead in the polls through nothing you've done. Mm, yeah. And that, that worries me, actually, because to get a poll lead, it means that then they've got this issue, which is, we best just not fuck it up. Let's not, not do anything and let's not say anything. And that was fair for a time. Mm. I do think a year out with the polls as they are, it's not unreasonable to ask, to say to Labour, um, what would you do? And the answer increasingly seems to be roughly the same, but with less scandals. Yeah, and also as well, there's that mental side of the... And I've voted Labour. There's that mental side of the left. And mm. Starmer has done a pretty good job, actually, of kind of marginalising them. Mm. But they're always there, ready to come roaring back with their demented ideas and policies, which when you see things, you know, like like the Tavistock, et cetera, et cetera, it really worries me. Well, that's the question, I suppose, is like Labour have got these big institutions and you go, to what extent can one person at the centre, who doesn't yet have a mandate, uh, isn't that popular, mm. really, doesn't infuse or inspire anybody, to what extent can he be bigger than the, the NEC, you know, or, or the unions or the Labour Parliamentary Party? All of those three things are still well to the... Maybe not economically left of the country these days, but maybe culturally to the left. So that is, I guess, if they're wanting a vote of somebody like me, you think, could you lend Labour your vote? Mm. You go, who wouldn't be in power once? I could absolutely see the situation where Labour win a landslide and then junk Starmer after 18 months. Because yeah. they would think, right, it's enough time to get a new person in, enact the policies, policies that we really want to do, uh, and then win the next election based on... Well, they, they wouldn't, but that's what they think would happen. You know, they, they, I don't think that the... the weirdly, the, the, the sort of main pledges of the Corbyn Manifesto are still a big guiding force for a lot of the left. And I think the British public probably agree with a lot of them, but not all at the same time. <laughs> the problem with the people on the hard left is like, let's fucking do it all. And you go, all right, maybe nationalise the trains, maybe no profit on water. Let's do, let's do those now and see how it goes. They're like, let's fucking do all of them. Mm. Yeah. Let's take it all back into state control. And I think that, you know, Starmer's shrewd enough to see that the public weren't ready for that. They still aren't ready for that. But that's my wonder is that, you know, obviously if you won a big election, there would be a mandate just for having been voted in. I could just, I could, if, I was a, if there's a way of putting a bet on that, that Labour would win an election and then, and then junk Starmer, I'd, I'd put that bet on. That's interesting. And one of the things as well is I remember the first time we had you on, we talked about a working class... Tory mm. voter and you and I was sort of saying it's a bit unheard of and you were like actually no you know Mondeo man and, yeah. and whatever and, and I think one of the things that has often uh, attracted people from that background to to voting for a Thatcher let's say it's the idea of aspiration it's the idea that we're going to build an economy in which if you, you if you put your shoulder to the wheel you're gonna you're gonna do well mm. right. Do, do you see that from either party on the table no. at the moment? Well, if you look at what the Tories have done, right, going right back to 2010, you could make a, a sort of a conservative um, party promo or, or an election sort of leaflet based on a very left-wing agenda, right? They could say that they've reduced the amount dramatically that you can get uh, in terms of dividends, you know? They've, uh, they actually, the first time I really heard about uh, tax avoidance was in the early years of the coalition in 2010. Remember the boycott Starbucks? That, a lot of that came from Cameron... And Osborne's rhetoric, you know, they weren't saying boycott, mm -hmm. but, um, but it came from stuff that they were saying. If you look at the way that they've changed the rules around the expenses that you can claim as second landlords, they've, put, they've literally given people money through COVID, you know, they've put up taxes. You could, you could honestly make like this really great banging left wing poster for the Conservative Party, but they're, they're slightly embarrassed about that, you know? In the same way that Labour would be slightly uneasy with some of the more right-wing right -wing things they've done. So it's a really interesting thing where people talk about how right-wing, you know, it's always the worst right-wing government in history, <laughs> according to the left. And, and, you know, culturally, I guess, you know, with some of the stances on immigration, culturally... But the, but the thing is, stances, but they're not actually no, no, doing anything. No, not. Rhetoric. Right. Some it's, of the rhetoric, you yeah. could argue. Yeah. What they've actually achieved on immigration, not really. Um, but, yeah, but if you talk about actual economics, nothing could be further from, from, right. from the Right, and it truth. just seems to me like we're in this place where is that whatever the problem is, there's only one answer, which is more government interference mm. in everything. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I know you, you, you're someone who sort of talks about the nanny state, and I don't even mean like the government's deciding how much tax to put in your Weetabix or whatever. Mm. I mean, you know... When COVID comes along, let's do it. When gas prices go up, the government... Can't. It's it's sort of like every big problem. You're never ever... No one is ever responsible for their own lives, 
really, because when you fall, the government's always there to like pick you up. You're like a little child. Do you know what I've I mean? definitely noticed that since COVID, like the 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 answer is always more government spending. You know, the mm. idea that even with pay rise settlements, really, you go. Well, sometimes we just we get a bit poorer because of what's happening. Right. You know that that you know sometimes we might get richer because of how the economy right. has, has been performing. But the problem with COVID is it drew this sort of like year zero. If anything bad happens. The government need to sort it out, and and you know we the, the effects of that are obvious with inflation. Everything that I mean, it's just so everything that people said would cause inflation has caused inflation, right? right? And then people say, well, let's have more of those things. It's insane, and it has made me lose quite a lot of respect for the Conservative Party. That I feel like there were certain key principles during COVID that they had a real gut instinct on. One of which was not shutting the schools. Right? Yeah. I really think that they knew that was fucking terrible for the yeah. ac academic yeah. development of those children. God knows how many families got divorced. And they were told yeah. at the time. They were told, and then we find out latterly through some of these WhatsApps that part of it was because they wanted to avoid a fight with Nicola Sturgeon. So, you know, I don't know, I don't think I'm in a place to vote Labour. It's very hard for me to consider that. But when you talk about voting Conservatives, your party gate is one thing, cake, you know, hypocrisy. That policy alone and the amount of people that it had an impact on, I find it very hard to get past that with the Conservatives. They knew what the right thing to do was, but they shut the schools. They're right. They shut the schools the first time, Extraordinary circumstances, but when it happened a second time, yeah. I was genuinely stunned and let down. Yeah, yeah, and look, also as well, and I can't believe I'm going to say these words, but I'm going to say them as a Remainer. I don't think I can forgive forgive Labour for Brexit for just the way that they ignored their heartland, their community, the people that they purported to represent, and then you've got someone like Mick Lynch come along, and they all, you know, they all start worshiping Mick Lynch and go, "Isn't he brilliant?" Hang on, mate, he's a dyed-in-the-wool gammon Brexiteer. So at what point did he stop being a racist and he become a face for the left that you all love? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we uh, yeah. I, uh, is, he, is he gammon? Gam what is gam gammon? Is well, white working class, you know. And a bit bald, older. Yeah, a bit, a bit older, 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 shaved head, yeah, you know, yeah. pinkish skin. Yeah, I'm part of gammon. No, yeah. no, you've yeah. got hair, mate. Yeah. I'm got hair, mate. Uh, dinosaur is, is one thing yeah. that I'm increasingly... Called, but go, I mean, going back to your point, I get, yeah, those were a bunch of criticism that were latterly applied to some people. I think the thing with, with, with Mick Lynch, it was, it was interesting for me because I like the way the guy communicated. Yeah, you know, so do I. a very effective union, union man. My dad was a union man, reminded me of guys that I knew growing up. But it was suddenly funny, like, oh, guys like Mick Lynch are back in fashion. But if you think this, and then it's like, but what about what Mick thinks, Mick thinks about Brexit? They're like, you know, we all have our blind spots. You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't want to, they didn't want to talk about that. But like a lot of what he said about Brexit was, you know, um, in incredibly valid. I think when, when it comes to Labour's stance on Brexit, they've latterly realised, you, you know, that they, they, I mean, Starmer was the architect of it. That's the irony. And a lot of people on the hard left know this, right? I'm not telling them anything they don't know. He, he came up with these, these sort of semantic straitjacket, which was like, we got the six tests of Brexit. That if it delivers all this, then we'll support it. And one of them was like the reintroductions of unicorns into the world. <laughs> you know, there was a whole bunch of things that, that weren't like sort of possible. So it's hard to take with Starmer when you go, you've literally just done like a complete flip. And it's strange because I now have a bit of empathy for the Corbynista supporters because it's just so it's so rich coming from him who who literally led the party towards a position of a second referendum where Remain was an option, which was effectively you know to to subvert. You could absolutely argue that Brexit was the wrong thing, but I just think that that weird period where people thought that the people could vote for a thing and that the thing might not might ha not happen without even being tried that seems like a strange time now. But Starmer, Starmer was a part of that. But the other side of it is that the Tories, ever since, you know, Brexit, it just seems to become more European. That, that's the, you know, in terms of regulation and stuff, it was, they were sort of sold Singapore on sea and it's now, what, Brussels on the Thames? Is <laughs> what, you know, so, yeah. I mean, I think politically, if you come to the next tour, it's very much a plague on both their houses. Yeah, yeah. well, that, that is very apt for the moment that we're in, Jeff. And, mm. and the final thing before we ask you, uh, our last question and move on to locals where we continue the conversation. Um, what do you want to happen in the next election? Because some people would say, well, look, the Conservative Party is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. They need a kicking so that they actually go away and rethink things. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think the five years of Labour, if it's the kind of Labour that Starmer is suggesting, it might not be too bad. If it kind of flips early in the, the life of the government, there's a lot of damage that could be done in, in, in a short space of time. Um, I think that it's hard. It, you know, I, 
I am sort of, I'm not tribally conservative, but I have voted conservative since 2010. But like a lot of people, I've drifted uh, away from that. You know, the honest answer, and this is not, you know, for somebody that's invested in politics, is that I honestly don't care that much who, who gets in because I don't think it'll be, you know, that, that different. And I do wonder as well if actually, just from a social media point of view, it'd be good to have five years of labour. So just for those people that have operated with complete hypothetical moral certainty for the last 13 years, that everything they voted for, if that had happened, everything would have been fine, they get to sort of experience the, the sort of uh, the burden of success, which is that you get held accountable for what you voted for. Because it's really interesting at the moment where, you know, it's particularly at the time where the, the centrists are sort of back in charge, is that, and there's a sort of veneration of the John Major types and the new Labour years. People sort of forget the stuff that happened under New Labour. Very early into the life of the government, uh, there was interviews about cash for questions. You know, there were people quitting. There was Mandelson. There was Iraq. You know, there was all this stuff that's all way fucking bigger in some respects than anything that's happened in the last few years. So I think that Labour will find it hard once they get in because you've never had more time of politicians in front, more news outlets, more people. Every time you put a minister... In front of a camera, that's a fuck up waiting to happen, right? So when we were kids, it was the news at 10 and the news at 6. Now it's all day long. You've always got people out there just ready with that big size knife to put your foot, foot into it. In terms of leaks now, you've got more cameras, you've got more WhatsApp groups, more leaks. So I think the idea is that Labour will, well, they'll just do it uh, roughly the same, but their conduct will be better. I think they might run a tight ship initially, but it's very hard to run stable government, you know, in this kind of media age. So I would think that, you know, sort of like mischievously, there's a part of me that one wants to see that happen to remind people that, that con bad conduct in government, it can be non-binary. And also just on a basic level, I'd love to see, you know all these accounts that all they do all day is go, the Tories, the Tories, I hate this fucking government. What are you gonna tweet about now? Because I'm sure it. that they would say, oh, we will hold Labour's feet to the flames. I reckon they'll do that for about a month and then it'll be back to photos of their lunch. Yeah, I'm sure. And uh, lovely to hear you talk about your colleagues in the comedy industry, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, in that instance, I was not I was thinking of those celebrities that have suddenly... I know who you mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Late know, in life gone, know. fuck, I'm not, no one's listening to me anymore. Oh, you know who is shit? Yeah. The Tories. Anyway, yeah. 5,000 Good likes. luck, Femi. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff. It's great to have you back on the show. We're going to continue the conversation on Locals where uh, our audience have yeah. already submitted a bunch of questions for you. Uh, but we always end in the same last question. Which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about that we really should be? Um, I suppose... All right. Right, we always talk about how bad social media is and how, what a, a polluting effect that it's had on our discourse. I think that in, in years to come, we'll reflect on how rolling news was actually a bigger thing. Because at that point... There was a time when the news was a thing that happened maybe three times a day. Once in the yeah. morning, once at lunchtime, early evening, late at night. The, the, the feel that there always has to be a story yeah. is really polluting. And actually, the, the, the news discussion on social media is just an extension of that principle. There's always a story. There's always a trend. You, you know, you never get like, nothing's trending today. Nothing's big. Um, and so I think that rolling news has, has seeded that idea and make you know so then you have to almost drag things into the slipstream of big news that wouldn't have otherwise been worthy i mean the stuff that gets called breaking news now it's you go when i was a kid it was like literally there had to be a coup you know what yeah. i mean there had to be a coup and even if it was a bloodless coup they go well maybe not today you know so and i think depending I, on the geography mate like south of sudan no yeah. one gives a shit yeah yeah i mean there's obviously a, a proximity yeah proximity, exactly. and then for some reason america um, <laughs> but like but yeah, I think that, you know, in history books, when they look forward, they'll probably think that um, that rolling news was really a, a bigger deal in some respects. And also, just finally, more of a frivolous note, is the true crime genre. I think the amount of money that's being made about murders... At, at, I mean, birds at, love all that. Birds love that. <laughs> oh, they <laughs> fucking do. They, uh, I just find it genuinely weird, the amount of money that's made out of murder. Out of all the crimes, right, it's the worst. If you ask me, would I rather be sexually assaulted or killed, I'd probably take my chances with the sexual assault. And yet, Murder on the Orient Express, A Time to Kill. Look at all the titles. If you just Google film with the word murder or kill in, I don't understand why. Women love it, mate. Uh, they our, do. our CEO here, Laura. Do she, they? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, She's got a channel it. called Unfathomable Crimes. She just bangs on about unsolved murders, and women love it. They do. They absolutely love a psychopath. Okay, so maybe that's my ne next book. They women fucking love a psychopath. Women yeah. absolutely love a psychopath. They do. Yeah, they do, <laughs> they, do. Yeah, they do. They do. They genuinely do. I think it's a thing of like women want to find a bloke who is a psychopath 
but not with them. Yeah, I can change him. Yeah. Yeah. Ted Bundy, if, he, if he'd been with me. Exactly. Yeah. I, they love it. Yeah. They love it. There we I go. I could change him, but, yeah. but about, about, about that'll, that'll be it. If there's any women who want to watch it, it's a great, a great podcast idea. I could change him where you take the worst serial killers in history and three women put forward views of how they could have made him yeah. a different person in the form. I could have tamed Fred West. I could have tamed Fred West. That Wasn't that Rose West's biography? Yeah. And a dark. Um, anyway. <laughs> perfect. Well, come over onto Locals, uh, but before you do, make sure you buy the book, uh, The British Bloke Decoded, and of course, Basic Bloke is the tour. Uh, Jeff will be in Edinburgh uh, during uh, the month of August and not going on tour around the rest of the country from September onwards. Make sure you do that. Follow us over to Locals, where we continue the conversation. What's the biggest animal you think you can kill with your bare hands if you had to? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.